Thank you for tuning into a Centerpoint Church message. Our mission is to help you take the next step in your relationship with God. We hope this message achieves that and inspires you to both grow in your faith and live it out today. Enjoy. Well, good morning. Welcome to Centerpoint Church. My name is Aaron DeMaster. I'm a pastor here. If you've never been before, you'll notice that we're a bit different than maybe a traditional church in our style, but we want you to know that we still see the Bible as authority. We take God seriously here, and we have a goal to encourage you to take the next step in your relationship with God every week you're here. This week, what we're doing is we're continuing our series called Dear Centerpoint, and and what we're looking at are letters in the New Testament of the Bible that were written to specific churches, Bible books such as Galatians or Ephesians or Philippians or to Timothy, a church planner in his churches. But we're looking at these letters that the Apostle Paul, or in other words, Paul, a person who was just sent by God on this lifelong mission to share and teach the ways of Jesus, we're looking at what he wrote to these first and early churches and how his insight and correction, it was so valuable then that it's included in the Bible that we have today. But as we do this, We're going to start seeing, and as we're looking at this, we're going to start seeing that these letters, although addressed to another church, it can start to feel as if they're written to us, center point, or this church, or even to get more refined, even us as individuals, because Paul seems to address some of the ways of living and societal struggles that they had, but that I, and I'm guessing you do too, struggle with. Today, we're going to learn specifically about the Ephesians, or the people in the church of Ephesus, but also a bit about ourselves from afar, through them. Don't you love that? Learning from afar, not really through you and your own experience? I know you do, because we all love the deets, right? We love the juicy details about things, especially when it's indirect or in no way could be us, right? Like, let's be real. Who's a WebMDer here? As in, like, you Google any sickness or bodily issue you have? Come on now. If not, I would first off guess you're lying in church today. But I think we all tend to Google, what's this weird bump I have? Or why do I have a weird smell here? Or is pooping for two hours straight an issue? Yes, it is. Um, But you want to learn, right? You want to learn from others' experience and lessons. So if it's really bad, you can be like, I'm sure that's not me or, oh, no, that's not what I got. Because none of us really want to actually go to the doctor and have them tell you, no, that's not normal. That's not normal that you spend too much time on the toilet or whatever it is. But maybe, maybe you're being truthful today and that's not something you do, but for you, you want to make sure that you don't tick the boss off at work. So when you have that coworker and you hear them get called into the office, your ears perk and you're like, ooh, and you go one ear to the door because you want to learn what and what not to do indirectly. Or if that's not you, maybe it was you as a kid, like you for sure did this because I did this, but like when you hear your parents yell, get over here to your sibling, you're like, ooh, publicly, but then the second they're out of sight, you're like, I totally got to hear what's going down. You scramble to get your position. I think the adult version of this today is when someone says something quite weird on Facebook or in a Facebook group, and you can't help but go, I got to look at the comments. I got to look at the comments. You're feeling like this guy. Um, to clarify, not because you like the meanness, but because you want to learn, right? Like what you will do or never do from them. 
I say all this because the letters in the Bible, they inform and correct people uh, on, on what a church and a Christian should be like, but it also lets us hear from afar without feeling completely called out, but we still get all the details. So I hope you're ready for some of that today. And again, we're, today we're looking at the Ephesians. It informs us on how to have an intimate relationship with God, but then it also directs us on how and why we should live differently. Like why our lives and our character and our relationships and our choices should be more aligned with the way the creator of life desires. As you think about you and your life choices and relationships today, whether it be one with your family or your spouse or your work relationships, do you want them to be more aligned with God? Do you want more insight from God on how to make them greater or more functionable? I know I do, especially with the holidays coming around, right? Like Christmas and Thanksgiving, they're soon. They're coming around the corner. And if something like this happens to your food, you might need help navigating more than the general conversation about like the food tasting good and the weather. So we're going to get some wisdom from God on that uh, from, an, in, from the book of Ephesians. But before we really dive into the actual content on having a right relationship with God and others and how that right living for him that we can see in Ephesians is directed, you need to first understand Paul's relationship with the Ephesians. Because to read this letter, the, the letter of Ephesians, and to truly understand the context of it, you should find yourself pausing and being like, did Paul have a past with them? Paul must have had a past with them. Because when you read it, it's like you found this love letter of like two of your friends that you thought just mutually met a week ago, but then you're like, you guys have dated in the past before. You guys definitely know each other. You got a history. Um, and this is the case in Paul's situation. Paul has a past in Ephesus before writing this letter. And we can read about it briefly in Acts. Ephesus at this time, it's probably the second largest populated area of the Roman Empire. So it, it kind of makes it like one of the largest port cities in the known world at the time. And it was easy for others to stop and visit. So this city, it's known for visitors and diversity and different beliefs and cultures and differences. It's kind of like a New York. But there is a small group of Jews that were living there, as well as Christians because of Paul. But Ephesus, it was also this famous destination because it possessed this temple dedicated to a pagan goddess named Diana, or also known as Artemis. And this pagan shrine in Ephesus was generally considered kind of like one of the seven world wonders. So people came for this. So Paul, he makes a stop here to plant a church, and he keeps on his journey of planting more. But eventually he comes back again, and amazing things start to happen. Paul's ministry, it booms. He spends two years conversing with and persuading people to get closer to God and follow him. And then in Acts 19, where we're picking up, it says this. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick and their illness were cured and evil spirits left them. And this is where it starts to get really interesting. People start to capitalize on Paul's teachings and his methods here. They think it's like maybe some sort of gimmick. Like one non-Christian, in jest, he tries to use the name of Jesus and Paul to remove an evil spirit. But for this person, the spirit responds, Jesus I know, Paul I know about, but who are you? That's a really bad scary voice, I know. But it's actually meant to be a little scary, right? 
Because what happens is then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them, overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. This is like horror movie material, right? But this is, this is the Bible. It says, when this moment became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear. And the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. It's exciting now, right? But then this happens. It says, a silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, that goddess, brought in a lot of business for the craftsmen there. He called them together along with the workers in related trades and said, you know, my friends, that we receive a good income from this business. And you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. There is danger not only that in our trade, will lose its good name, but also the temple of our great goddess Artemis will be discredited. Oh yeah, I guess, I guess the goddess herself will lose some things too, who is worshipped throughout the whole province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty too. You see, they're nervous about their business because people are changing their worship habits towards this one true invisible God. They're changing their spending habits to not buy relics anymore. And people as a whole, they're changing their tourism to Ephesus, which in part loses these people money. And it's all happening because people are changing their lives based off of the good news and life direction of Jesus. Now, before I go any further in this, I want to pause here and ask you, if you're a follower of Jesus, would you say that Jesus has made that type of difference in your life? One that would change your spending habits, your worship habits, your tourism habits, to just list a few. It's what God sees as holy. But it's not what these businessmen want. So these people, they rally. It says, when they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. They start to riot to try and dissolve and make Christians scatter. But they start strong. Um, but, uh, but these Christians, they stay strong without any major loss from it. But in the section of Acts here, you can see Paul and Christian teachings and ways were causing this uproar in this diverse, pluralistic city. And this is the backstory and history Paul has with the Ephesians when he writes to them years later. So as you can see, Paul isn't per se just writing to them blindly. He has a history. He's not a dude just dropping the L word on the first date or proposing in the first day of the, or the first week of dating someone. He has built up history with them. So now we're going to take that to the letter that we're looking at today, the letter of Ephesians. And let me just break down this six-chapter letter for you. The first chapter is like Paul praises them. He prays for them, thanks them. If you were here last week, we did the Galatians, and you heard this is drastically differently than the Galatians, because in Galatians, he lays down the hammer right away. He doesn't do that in the case here. Chapter 2, it says, Paul says, all can be saved by God's grace, both Jews and Gentiles. Jews would be people of the Old Testament. Gentiles would be people who are new to this all. Chapter 3, Paul explains his excitement to deliver this news and praise for them. I don't know, to be honest, this chapter just seems kind of random to me um, amongst the mix, but, but I guess if someone read your text messages these days, they might say the same about you and what you say, but, but sometimes you just have stuff to say, and I feel like that was the case for Paul. Chapter 4, he encourages them to use their life for a purpose, to build up God's church or people. Chapter 5, make sure your relationships represent Christ, and chapter 6, there's more on relationships. I guess when you look at this, at first glance... And when I see this all broken out, I think, man, Paul must have had ADD, right? 
No offense if that's you, because it's probably me too. But sometimes his letter seems so scattered, right? And this is a simplification of it. Sometimes I feel like it's like following this old man who like really, really likes to talk. And he's on some random tangent that you have no interest in. That's kind of how it feels like with Paul sometimes. That's the vibe I got a little bit from this letter, even after reading it seven or eight times this week. But if I was to summarize this letter in one statement for you, I think Paul is telling us, God has done the amazing for everyone, therefore live amazingly for him. So we're going to dive into the actual scripture of Ephesians and see if you think the same as me. It starts by saying, this letter is from Paul. I'm writing to God's holy people in Ephesus who are faithful followers of Christ Jesus. So Paul's pretty clear. He's writing to Christians, but then kind of gets right to it. He starts preaching to them. He says, God's purpose was that we Jews who were the first to trust in Christ would bring praise and glory to God. And now you Gentiles have also heard the truth, the good news that God saves you. And when you believed in Christ, he identified you as his own by giving you the Holy Spirit whom he promised long ago. So he's saying, whether you're a Jew or Gentile, we all have access to God. Then Paul lays the gospel on them, or in other words, gives them just kind of a breakdown of how we can have access to God. He says this, once you were dead because of your disobedience and many sins, all of you used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. But our very nature, we are subject to God's anger just like everyone else. But God is so rich in mercy and he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. For he raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Jesus. So God can point us in all future ages as examples of incredible wealth of his grace and kindness towards us as shown in all he has done for us who are united with Christ Jesus. God saved you by his grace when you believe, and you can't take credit for this. This is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so none of us can boast about it. You might feel like, all right, I've heard this before, and you probably have, because Paul wants to hammer this home in all people, all people, again, Jews and Gentiles, church after church, letter after letter. We see something like this is almost included in all the letters he writes. And to state it clearly, what he's communicating is the fact is that by what God has done for us, giving up his life and position, not what we can do, we can, or not what we can do or what we have done, but that is what makes us right, what God has done. When we believe and embrace that it's up to God, we are united with Christ and can have salvation. This today is the good news. It's what every church should be talking about. Every sermon should include it because it's radically life-changing for everyone. I would be doing a disservice today if I didn't pause right now and just simply ask you, have you embraced this gift, this gift of life and forgiveness from God? Maybe you, you're beating yourself up still today, like you're, you feel like your good works don't outweigh your bad, or, or that you wish you were better, or you just wish that you were less naughty, and then you'll go to God, or, or maybe when you're more holy, you'll eventually go to God. None of that matters to God, and none of these are what gives you salvation to have eternal life with him. What matters to God is your relationship and belief in what he's done for you. If you've never embraced that gift before, it simply starts in your head and your heart saying, God, I need your grace. I believe you can give it. And you're a Christian. I hope some of you consider saying that if you've never done that before. But then from there, Ephesians continues. 
It says, for we are God's masterpiece. He's created us anew in Christ Jesus so that we can do good things he planned for us long ago. So you're good enough, he's saying. And you will never be more or less good to God. But he does desire you or to use you for good, for purpose. Now, if you were here last week, you heard Paul in Galatians. He kind of reams the Jews for wanting Gentiles to be more like them, to follow old laws and commands. And he kind of corrects them, saying the Gentiles are fine um, because it's not about the law. But in this letter, it's kind of different. It kind of comes across a little different. Um, what he says in this letter, he has kind of a situation where he says, honestly, you Gentiles, you're not great. <laughs> you're not too great, actually. You're kind of like messed up. And I'm just being honest, but that like, is kind of my interpretation that Paul has of Gentiles. But then he says, now, he brought this good news of peace to you Gentiles, even you Gentiles who are far away from him, and peace to the Jews who are near. Now, all of us can come to the Father through the same Holy Spirit because of what Christ has done for us. So he's saying everyone in Christ is on the same playing field. And this is God's plan, it says. Both Jews and Gentiles who believe the good news share equally in the riches inherited by God's children. Both are part of the same body. Both enjoy the promises of blessings because they belong to Christ Jesus. Both have a mission to be the church today. As we're halfway through this letter, we see Paul is desperately trying to show everyone God's amazingness. Again, the paraphrase Paul here, he said things about God, things like, you're created new in him. He's brought you peace. He's rich in mercy. He loves us. God saves you by giving grace. What Paul's doing is he's showing you why we should have this awe and deep relationship with him. Not just a, yeah, he's an okay guy. I know Jesus. He's all right. This awe and amazement is what Paul wants to create in us. And it's, it's not hard to get yourself there when you truly believe those statements of what God would do for you. Has anyone ever had like a hero before um, or someone that you had like awe over and you were just like so excited to meet them and then you finally meet them and you're like, oh, meh, not great. Kind of maybe like this scene. Check it out. Who the heck are you? What are you talking about? I'm Santa Claus. No, you're not. Uh, why, of course I am. <laughs> you're Santa. What song did I sing for you on your birthday this year? Uh, happy birthday, of course. <laughs> Paul is trying to paint us a picture saying Jesus is no letdown. He's no fake. He is as good as he seems. So don't miss out on a relationship with him on how amazing he is. So that's the first chunk of this letter. As you think back of what's going on in Ephesus, some of the first stuff we talked about, can you now see maybe why Paul is so clear about who Jesus is, about how amazing he is, versus some statue or impersonal fake God like Artemis? For you today, do you believe he's that good? Because when we do, it changes, it changes for, in us become desired. 
and it becomes noticeable in us like it was in Ephesus. Again, demons were released in Ephesus. People were healed. People made life choices that were financially different. Their worship choices were different. Their differences with their tourism choices, their relationships with others were different. So much changed. So much change in these individuals that it changed the entire city's consumerism, tourism, and character. And to me, it just shows the impact of Jesus on personal, individual lives. So I want to ask the same question I asked you earlier. Are you like the people in Ephesus? Are you letting the awe of Jesus and his ways change you? This is part one of the two parts of the letter to the Ephesians. But now as we go into part two... Paul says a key word that kind of transitions of how we should view the rest. And the word is, therefore. He says this, Therefore, I, a prisoner of serving the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of your calling, for you have been called by God. Part two is hinged on the therefore. Again, my summary at the beginning was, God has done amazing for everyone, therefore live amazingly for him. You who believe and have experienced that first part, therefore, shall now live differently. Not because it's mandatory, but because this news of God, this experience of his amazingness, if you fully embrace it, is so life-altering, you should want to choose to live differently moving forward. God doesn't want you to just like make up for it by doing a gift off of like, oh, you gave me a gift, now I got to give you a gift. Or, oh, you did this nice thing, I got to do this nice thing for you. Anyone ever do that before? Like in the neighborhood or whatever? Like for Sydney, like with my wife Sydney and I, I'll be like, I'll give you a back rub if I get this later. Or like, or just naturally I start doing nice things, expecting something nice from her. Or we'll have that neighbor that gives us a gift and I'll be like, I oh, know I gotta get them something. Or that person who bought a dinner and now it's like, I guess it's our turn to buy dinner next time. It's a nice off, kind of kind of like this. Check it out. Neighbor, you got a lot of rain last night. Yeah, I went ahead and fixed your downspout. Huh. Yeah, I don't want you getting any water in your basement. Oh, looks like you got a dead branch over there. Huh, I guess I do. I'll take care of that for you. No, seriously, don't worry about it. No, I insist. Safety first. Oh, yeah. Cuts like butter. Well, do you see your perennials are coming in? I didn't plant those. It's because I did. They call me old green thumb. Really? Well, I got to get you a Fleet Farm gift card as a thank you. No, totally unnecessary. Too late. Check your back pocket. What? This is not what God wants, and, and honestly, we'll never be able to nice off God's gesture to us of giving us salvation. But when you embrace how amazing of a gift God has given you, therefore, you can't not desire to change how you live. If you've really experienced it and felt it, you can't not change it's not a requirement of God, but it's a natural response and, response and desire from someone. So today, if you've experienced that first part and are now hinging on the therefore part, I want to quote Paul and beg you to lead a life that it's worthy because you have been called to do so by God. So part one, God has done the amazing for everyone, therefore live amazingly for him. Where do you think you land in part two currently of living amazingly for him? I want to play a little game. I'm going to give you a scenario, and I want you to tell me like, by your face um, if you would respond like this, kind of pleasant. You don't have to give me a thumbs up. You can just kind of smile. Or you can give me the face that's kind of like this, 
but you don't have to do the hands either. But you're just going to show me this by making the face uh, as you're out there. We're going to do some practice ones. Here's three practice ones. Uh, if I put out a pumpkin pie, what are you? Oh, okay, okay. How about 10 people in the checkout line with one checkout open? Okay. <laughs> um, the person in front of you is a Vikings fan talking smack about the Packers. What are you? Oh, okay. Uh, all right. We're warmed up now. Now we're going to get to some serious ones. When someone asks you at work, who messed the document up? And it was you, and you're disgruntled about having the fess up and maybe lie, or you're fine being truthful and just say it as it is. Which face are you in response to that? When someone does something against you, for example, blows leaves into your yard after you just cleaned your yard, right? Are you ticked, mad, or are you still a calm, pleasant person? When there's free food somewhere and you're excited about it, you're like, yeah, free food. So you pile up a plate and then you get to the end of the line and there's a little note that says, suggested donation of $5. Are you mad or angry or pleasant and generous over it? P.S. We are having brunch today. And P.S. There is no sign like that. We have never done that and we will never have that. It's completely free. So stick around for brunch afterwards. When a new opportunity comes your way, are you controlled and pleasant with what you have or seeking promiscuity and kind of angry that you're stuck in what you have. When someone wrongs you, does your mind go to try to understand and forgive, aka pleasant, or are you ticked and ready for revenge, angry? We all have a natural response to things that happens in our life. We pursue things that are not per se culturally, they're not unacceptable, they're really not unacceptable, because all these things could be debated as like culturally accepted these days, whether you chose one or the other. But many choices aren't what a person of God, a person who understands what God wants from his people, therefore should choose. Today, it's culturally acceptable to tell little lies, to be angry, to steal, to gossip, to seek revenge, to be promiscuous. But this is the therefore. Paul is teaching us should change as a Christian or a person who truly understands what God has done for them and just wants to give back to God even though it's unnecessary. If we look back to the or if we look to now these last few chapters of Ephesians, this is what it teaches us. And specifically at the end, the therefores are in relationships and we're getting to that. So it says here in Ephesians 4, always be humble and gentle, be patient with each other, making allowances for each other's faults because of your love. Make every effort to keep yourself united in the spirit, binding yourselves together with peace, for there's one body and one spirit, just as you have been called to one glorious hope for the future. He says, change then. It says, with the Lord's authority, I say this, live no longer as the Gentiles do, for they are hopelessly confused. Their minds are full of darkness. They wander far from life. God gives because, he has, because they have closed their minds and hardened their hearts against him. They have no sense of shame. They live for lustful pleasure and eagerly practice every kind of impurity. But that isn't what you learned about Christ. Since you have heard about Jesus and have learned the truth that comes from him, throw off your old sinful nature and your former way of life, which is corrupted by lust and deception. Instead, let the Spirit renew your thoughts and attitudes. Put on your new nature, created to be like God, truly righteous and holy. It says, put on your new nature, as if it's like new clothes. Who are my clothes shoppers in the room? Who loves shopping for clothes? I like shopping for clothes. And like when you get the clothes at home, who does one of these? You know, selfie. I don't know if you're one of these selfies, right? You act differently when you have new clothes. 
In sports, there was a saying um, when I was growing up, look good, feel good, play good. At least that's what us soccer players used to say because we always had gelled up hair and fancy cleats. But it was true. We did better because we felt good, and we felt good because we looked good. Although Paul here isn't saying just look good, I think he's saying start doing things you know will evidently show Christianity through your actions. Start living your new nature. But he gets really blunt in how to do that. If you're daydreaming, now's the time to wake up because this is the stuff that will change your life and your relationships. Paul says this, stop telling lies. Let us tell our neighbors the truth for we are all parts of the same body and don't sin by letting anger control you. Don't let the sun go down while you are still angry for anger gives a foothold to the devil. If you are thieves to quit stealing and said use your hands for good hard work and then give generously to others in need. Don't use foul or abusive language. Let everything you say be good and helpful so that your words will be an encouragement to those who hear them. All those things that we looked at in our pleasant versus angry face, right? Don't lie. Don't let anger control you. Don't steal. Be generous. And then there's more. It says, get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, harsh words, and slander, as well, we, as, well as all evil behavior. Instead, be kind to each other, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God through Christ has forgiven you. And then more. He says, let there be no sexual morality, impurity, or greed among you. Such sins have no place among God's people. And then he explicitly says, carefully determine what pleases the Lord. He just gave us a list of things that we should or shouldn't therefore be doing if we want to please the Lord. Again, these aren't what save you. God sees you as good and redeemed already when you have a relationship with him. But if you are desiring to honor him, this is what he wants. So you do it freely for him. Again, if we recapped on that long list, like I just kind of made a list, don't lie, don't let anger like control you, don't steal, give generously, don't use foul or abusive language, be an encouragement, get rid of bitterness, rage, anger, harsh words, slander, be kind, tenderhearted, forgiving, not greedy, not sexual and moral, not, nothing impure in your life. This isn't a laundry list to make you feel bad about what you do and don't do, but they're a list of things that therefore... Because of what God has done for you, that you can use to determine in your excitement of the therefore how to do more or less by desire and please the Lord. I know this might be feeling like I'm preaching right now, but I got three more things I think Paul wants us to highlight to finish out this letter, and it's specific to our relationships. He says this, For wives, this means submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For a husband is the head of, the, of his wife, as Christ is the head of the church. He is the savior of his body and the, the church. As the church submits to Christ, so you wives should submit to your husbands in everything. Ye, no one likes this verse. Well, I guess except the men. Uh, but then it says, for husbands, this means love your wives just as Christ loved the church. He gave up his life for her. I hear submit, but then I think, yikes, to love your spouse like the way Jesus loved the world? That sounds ridiculously hard. It sounds harder, actually. Like, as a husband, it's not just give up your life by taking a bullet for her if someone had a gun, because whoever has a gun like, in front of you. But giving up your life for her, even if she's wrong or sinful or doesn't want you back, is what it's saying sacrificing for her, not just doing the heavy lifting for her at home, but sacrificing the comfort of 
maybe noon football to help her around the house. Yee, sorry guys, I went there. That's a touchy subject. So let me back up a little bit. Let me back up a little bit and say, again, it said submit women, right? <laughs> As in sometimes women, you might need to say, no, that thing is not going to get done because I want to respect that he needs to rest right now and watch the football game, right? But submit and sacrificial love, that is the therefore of being a follower of Jesus in our marriages. Are you doing that in yours? It doesn't stop there. Again, I'm, I'm preaching right now, so I'm coming for y'all. Uh, kids and parents are next. It says, children, obey your parents because you belong to the Lord, for this is the right thing to do. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise. If you honor your father and mother, things will go well for you, and you will have a long life here on earth. Kids, from let's say zero to 50 today, it says, obey and honor your parents, whether they be close to you or not, whether you like them or not. It's a therefore action in Scripture. It's not everyone does this, so we should. It's a thing Christians do. They seek to honor their parents. Sure, they might need boundaries, but they should be honored. Then it says fathers or parents, do not provoke your children to anger by the way you treat them. Rather, bring them up with discipline and instruction that comes from the Lord. Parents or Christian families, therefore, because of what Jesus has done for you, you won't be too hard on your kids. Yay, right, kids? Right? You won't make them blow up with anger. But what you will do is discipline them. You will. You'll make them good citizens, whatever it takes to make them good citizens. You will make them people who obey you because it's training them to obey the Lord. And you will teach them about God, too, it's saying. Not just give them a choice for church or faith or, or what they feel is right when they are a child, but you will lead them to it by prioritizing instruction that comes from the Lord. Last but not least, for my preaching session here, I promise we're getting close to the end. This is as uncomfortable for me as it is maybe you. Uh, but in this next passage, it uses the terms slaves and masters. But I think realistically today, it's more like workers and bosses. It says, slaves, obey your earthly masters with deep respect and fear. Serve them sincerely as you would serve Christ. Try to please them all the time, not just when they are watching you. As slaves of Christ, do the will of God with all your heart. Work with enthusiasm as though you are working for the Lord rather than for people. You, a worker, hearing this right now, therefore, since you are a Christian, you will respect your work authority. You will respect and serve your bosses. You will try to please them as if you are doing it for God. And then bosses, it says, or leaders, masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Don't threaten them. Remember, you both have the same master in heaven, and he has no favorites. This seems even more ridiculous, but therefore... You who are a follower of Jesus, you should be servant-like to your team or workers. Respect them, serve them, please them, as if it was God working for you. And this brings us to the end of Ephesians and the end of my intention preaching for a moment here. But what you see here is you, you who maybe accepted God and how amazing he is and what he's done for you, the part one, if you truly have that, therefore, you should desire to live differently. And Paul gives you clear ways on how. As you assess your life again right now, are you doing some of these? If I'm honest about me, I don't like some of these. I don't like some of these, and some just seem ridiculous. I don't want to change my character and get rid of all bitterness, anger, and rage. Harsh words. Sorry, people around me, I just don't want to. I want to keep them. I don't want to sacrifice everything for my wife. Sorry, Sid. I don't, I don't want to do that. 
I don't want to treat my workers or employees uh, like they're my boss. Sorry, JC and Jacob and Kip. I don't want to force my kids to follow the Lord. That sounds like a nightmare sometimes to force them to get here every Sunday. Sorry, Eliza and Claire. I don't want to honor or obey my parents' desire for holidays or vacations or, or whatever their desire maybe is because I just want to do my own thing sometimes. Sorry, parents. But man, when I focus on what God has done for me, I'm re-motivated to do them. And therefore, I desire to change myself. Do you? I'm so happy that Jesus said yes to the therefore of making things right when the solution is, oh, you want a relationship back with your people? Therefore, give your life. And I know he gave it to me freely and will always offer it to me freely. No matter what I ever do achieve or change, I desperately want to live differently for him in my own free will and desire to do so. I know this is the case for a lot of you today too. So as we wrap up, where can you focus on living for God more this week? Is it in your character? Is it not stealing, being, being generous, or not gossiping? Is it in your parenting, like by disciplining even when it's not fun, by doing faith things with your children even when, even when it's not fun and you're exhausted? Is it in your marriage as in submitting or loving and sacrificing to your spouse? Is it in your work relationships, like serving your workers or boss as if it was God himself? I hope you leave with one you can work on. But as I wrap this letter up, Paul shows us from Ephesians is this pluralistic, diverse city, this this city of various religions, beliefs, and ways and views. Sounds like today, right? But he shows us that this city starts to notice the changes from Christians. So Paul reminds them in this letter, and I think us today, God has done amazing things for everyone. Therefore, live amazingly for him. And maybe, just maybe, we can see a change in our era the way they saw a change in Ephesus. Will you pray with me as I close this? Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for today. Thank you for just giving us a clear example of, of first off, your, the gospel, of, of, of who you are, what you've done for us. It's amazing. We can do nothing to earn that. You just love us. But God, therefore, we want to act on this. Some of us are just so moved by this. Help us, therefore, live differently for you. God, help us prompt whatever that prompting was for us. Help us live that out. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.